If you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 30 this morning, that's where we will be. Psalm 30. A psalm, a song at the dedication of the house, the psalm of David. Verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you, His godly ones, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by Your favor You have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid Your face, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to You forever. Fathers, we open up Your Word. Thank You so much for the promise to come and for the joy that we can have in You. We thank You, Father, that weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We thank You, Father, that in spite of anything happening, occurring, going on in our lives that we can have a a joyful countenance. Father, different than than perhaps the, uh, the entertainment of the world or the pleasures of earth, joy in the Spirit, Lord. It's what we seek today. It's what we love about You. It's why we long to be with you, Father, even when we don't recognize it, that sense of of enthusiasm and excitement that, that begins to well up as we come into your presence. Father, thank you for joy. And Holy Spirit, I pray for a fresh outpouring of joy this morning as we study your word and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here's a question. This may be easier to answer for those of you first hour people than the second hour people, but are you a morning person? (laughs) You know the ones. They don't need an alarm. The sun comes up. The birds begin to chirp. Their heads pop off their pillows with a smile on their faces and a song in their hearts. You can almost hear the melody. Dee, 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 dee. Disgusting. (laughs) That is for all non-morning people. But you know, it's interesting, since the very first evening and morning on day one of creation, mankind has functioned with a 24-hour clock. We have a biological, physiological clock that is actually a phenomenon seen throughout creation. It's interesting. As, as morning dawns, that's when the flowers begin to open. As evening comes on, the flowers begin to close. And so like many of us, as morning dawns, we, we awake, we start to feel the day. Some immediately have joy in the morning. Others need a few cups of coffee first. But we have this, this clock. Scientists call it the circadian rhythm. Circadian rhythm, it's simply from the Latin circa, which means around, and diem, which means day. So around day, we begin to become more alert. I looked at this, I was curious about it, so I got online and Googled a little bit. And Core body temperature and the secretion of melatonin, those are the two key factors in this body rhythm that we all have, our body clocks. Melatonin is interesting, it's cued by darkness. It's an actual uh, metabolite that's in the pineal gland, there in the hub of the brain. And as the light begins to dim at the end of the day, God designed us so that melatonin would begin to be secreted into our systems. It's a natural sleep aid. 
<laughs> See, God provided for that so that when the night came on, we would go to sleep. We're too stupid to realize that. <laughs> you know, we create lights, electricity, neon, TVs, and we got to stay up and we're fighting it. Have you ever done that? You're on the couch watching a show or something and you're, you're passing out. Why don't you just go to bed? <laughs> We have this body clock that's running inside of us. And on the circadian clock, it begins at midnight. That's zero hour if you look at the way it's laid out here. And here's what it looks like, basically. At 12 midnight, melatonin has already been in production for some two or three hours. That's why by midnight you're, you're running tired. By 2.30 a.m., according to the circadian rhythm, you should be in your deepest sleep. At 4.30 a.m., it's been measured that that's the time of lowest body temperature. You know, that's when you kind of wake up and pull the covers up because you're starting to shiver. 6.45 a.m., all of a sudden, you have the sharpest rise in the 24-hour period in blood pressure. At 6.45. See, God knows what He's doing. At 7.30 a.m., melatonin secretion completely ceases and the body is free of it. By 10 a.m., you're at the point of highest alertness which I realized is in between services at the bridge. (laughs) Interesting how science catches up with what the Lord had already created in us. David says, Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And I like that. I like that, that certain return of day. There's always hope. There's always a fresh awakening. There's always an opportunity for joy in the Lord. Lamentations 3.22. The, the prophet Jeremiah is pouring out sorrow. That's why it's called Lamentations. And yet he's able to say in verse 22, Lamentations 3, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Tell you what, you fall asleep in sin and sorrow and hardship... Hey, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. That we not, might not need to suffer the things of the night before. doesn't mean that we should try to suffer the things of the night before. doesn't mean that we should launch ourselves into sin long about 11, 12 midnight before the melatonin really takes us. No. But there are new mercies in the Lord constantly. His grace always poured out. Peter said, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The ultimate joy in the morning. Well, looking at Psalm 30, the heading doesn't mention morning per se, but it does indicate the dawning of a new era. It's called a song at the dedication of the house. A song at the dedication of the house of David. What house might that be? Well, some think that perhaps it's David's palace in the city of David. Perhaps David wrote this when he was having his palace dedicated as he's moving in there, that cedar palace. It was a time when David had come into his own. In fact, if you want to turn back to 2 Samuel... 2 Samuel chapter 5, we can, we can see when this happened, this, this time of, of David's house being built. 2 Samuel chapter 5. It had been a def, decade of difficulty and struggle. A hard day's night for David, you might say. And finally there comes a new dawn, a joy for David as he assumes the throne over all Israel. Watch this, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all of Israel. Skip down to verse 10. David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then, verse 11, Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David realized, verse 12, that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. And that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. You know, you get to that place where everything's clicking. Where all the work seems to have paid off. Where you've landed. And you're thinking, wow, life is actually pretty good. I've moved in. You know, the house is built. The struggles are behind. 
And that's where possibly David was. Some think David was as he wrote, I'll extol you, O Lord, for you've lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol and you've kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Now David could have said this at many times in his life, but there is a great joy when it dawns on you that God has lifted you up. When it all comes together and things are clicking. When you're no longer fighting, but you're in peace. When you're no longer struggling with disease, but you have healing. When you no longer worry of death because you are so full of life, when your mourning turns to dancing. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new have come. Now here's the problem. Those of you who have been in Christ for any amount of time may know that from the joy of entering into the house of the Lord, from the joy of of dedication that you've given your life to the Lord and He has received you and poured out His grace, from that moment of, of awesome realization that now you are alive, to now, things can begin to fade. It may not be today what it was in that first day when you gave your life to Jesus. How long did it take for you to realize that that early joy has faded. And some might say, well, I was made new, but that was a long time ago. David has advice for the new creature who feels like they're fading. Verse 4, he would just say, Sing praise to the Lord, you His godly ones, and give thanks to His holy name. Sing praise to the Lord. Why do we worship? And why do we worship for so long? Trust me, we can worship far longer than we do. But why do we? Sing praise to the Lord, you His godly ones. And note this, give thanks to His holy name. The word name there is zeker in the Hebrew, and it is not name. The literal word there is memorial, or remembrance. Give thanks to His holy memorial. Give thanks in the remembrance of His holiness. You see, what we need to do, what we need to learn to do, is that once you were new, but now the night is long, and the darkness heavy, and your eyes may be dry from sleepless nights, remember, remember, sing praise to the Lord, and give thanks for His holy remembrance, for what He's done. You may not sense that He's doing anything right now, but note this, there is joy in the remembrance of His goodness. There's joy in the remembrance of His goodness. Psalm 77, David will say, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. In that psalm, the psalmist actually is is struggling through the night. And he can't sleep, and his eyes are dry, and his tongue is clinging to the roof of his mouth, and he's, he's tearless because he's cried so much. He's been so upset and so worked up, and finally he says, what do I do? What do I do? And it hits him, I'll remember what you've done. I'll think about how you have blessed me. I may not be in the season of blessing right now, but oh, I know in the Lord I have been blessed. I have had joy. And that's what I'm going to think about. That's what I'm going to praise Him for. I'm going to give thanks to His holy remembrance. And Paul said in Colossians 2.6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. We've talked about this verse many times. As you received Him, so you should walk in Him. In other words, the joy, the enthusiasm, the wonder, the praise that you had in that moment when you received Jesus. Man, walk in that. Choose to stay in that place. Paul says, having been firmly rooted, being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, overflowing with gratitude. When sorrow in mourning, and I mean M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, sorrow in mourning begins to impose itself on joy in the morning, give thanks to His holy memorial. Remember what He's done. Now, for all that, I need to tell you, David's house of cedar probably wasn't the house being dedicated in this psalm. It probably wasn't that moment of his realization and joy that all was well and that there was peace. This psalm was more likely written after something had happened that that brought about a weeping through the night. 
a struggle, a hardship. The application is accurate. David recognizing how far the Lord brought him, but I don't believe his joy was in the building of his own cedar dwelling. For you see, David's joy was always first and foremost in the presence of the Lord. It was when God was near. It was when David was walking in fellowship with his father. That that was the time for David. That's what he longed for. Not his own house, but the house of the Lord. What are you saying? I'm saying the house of dedication was not David's house at all. It was the house of the Lord that this psalm was written for. Now you might say, wait a minute. I thought Solomon built the house of the Lord. I thought he was the one who dedicated the house, the temple, there in Jerusalem. David didn't live to see it. He drew up the plans. He wanted to do it, but remember, God said, no. No, no, you're not going to build my temple. You have blood on your hands, David. You were a warrior king, and my temple will be built in peace by a man of peace. By the way, Solomon's name means peace. Shalom. Shlomo. A man of peace. Well, so if David wasn't there for the dedication, how can Psalm 30 be a dedication to the house of the Lord? Well, note this. 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 1, told us that David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God, and pitched a tent for it. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 1, And they brought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent, which David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. David's tabernacle. A house for the Lord. You see, David had had a house of sorts constructed, a dwelling place, a place where the Ark of the Covenant could go. A place there in Jerusalem. There in the city of David. You remember the story of the Ark of the Covenant, right? That the Lord directed Moses and the Israelites to have it built. And they carried it through their 40 years wandering. They brought it into the promised land and things began to go wrong. The ark was at Bethel and then moved to Shiloh and then it was captured in Philistine territory. I won't go into the whole Dagon situation when it was in the temple of Dagon. You remember that story? There's so many great puns there that I I can't go there right now. But then it came from there to Kiriath-Jerim and finally to the house of Obed-Edom And ultimately from there up to Jerusalem. And that's where David wanted the ark to be. Why? Because David knew that's where the glory of God resided. At the mercy seat. David knew that's where God said, I will meet with my people. Above the mercy seat. And David said, I I want that. In the capital of Israel, yes, but near my home, I want to be as close as possible to the presence of the Lord. And so David had his own tabernacle Constructed. It wasn't actually even as large as the original tabernacle, but it was a tent for the protection of the Ark of the Covenant. And so David leads that joyful procession from the house of Obed-Edom to bring the Ark up to Jerusalem, and rabbinical scholars teach that David wrote this psalm, Psalm 30, on the spot. What spot? 2 Samuel 6 verse 13 tells us when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Verse 14 says, And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, and the rabbis believe it was between verse 13 and 14 that David wrote Psalm 30. On the spot. On the bringing up of the ark. During that time. And the application is interesting and I think somewhat obvious. 2 Samuel 6.15 says, So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Talk about joy in the morning. There was joy in that day following a night, three months actually, of some degree of sorrow. Verse 5 tells us, For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. His anger. What anger? Well, you know, this is the second attempt to bring the ark up to the holy city. The first attempt angered God greatly. 2 Samuel 6-7 tells us the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. On the first attempt there, because Uzzah defiled the ark. Because Uzzah reached out to grab the ark to keep it from toppling. 
Some people think that's not fair. He was just trying to keep the ark from falling down. Listen, the Lord doesn't need you to keep His glory from toppling over. He doesn't need our help to defend His glory. You don't have to protect the glory of God, my friends, as if it were some flimsy flimsy thing. As if it could fall down. Think about this. As Moses and the children of Israel approached Mount Horeb there, Moses and Aaron were told in Exodus 16, verse 6, said to the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. So they're all camped there, and Moses said, In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. We're told in Exodus 24, verse 17, to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. In fact, there in, not in Sinai, which is the traditional site of of Mount Sinai, which I don't think that's where it was at all, but actually across the Gulf of Aqaba, there's a mountain. It is much more likely the mountain that the children of Israel came to. The top of the mountain is burned. You can see pictures of it today. Interesting. No one knows why. No one knows how. But the upper third or so of the mountain is literally blackened. You can look at it. You can see it's obvious. Why do you think it's on the other side of a Kaaba? You're going to have to go back to Exodus and listen to those teachings there and find out. The glory of the Lord, though, is a big deal. The glory of the Lord, my friends, will not topple. You can have confidence in the glory of the Lord. In the absolute will of God being accomplished. You know the Hebrew word for glory. You Bible students, it's kabod. Kabod, that word that doesn't just mean glory, it's also translated heavy or weighty, substantive. That same word, actually the adjective form of that word, kabed, is used in 1 Samuel 4.18 describing Eli the priest. He was kabod. He was a little heavy. And this same heavy, substantive glory of God rested above the ark that Uzzah dared to touch. And it was a foolish move. Not unlike those today who would play around with the glory of God as if it's just a cool thing. You know, who would play around with the relationship with God as if it's just, you know, Jesus my bro. We hang together. You know, God's the man. God's not the man. You know, people who, who come up with cute little nicknames, the man upstairs, he's a whole lot more than that. The glory of God is substantive. And David wrote his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Listen to this, as massive, as awesome, as weighty as the glory of God is, equally massive is his grace. Why did Uzzah die? Because they were doing things man's way. Now, please listen. They were doing things man's way. Uzzah didn't die because for a moment God shut off his grace so that he could slam somebody and then turned it back on. That's not how grace works. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20 says, If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. David was momentarily devastated by the death of Uzzah. In fact, we're told for three months the ark stayed down there at at Obed-Edom's house. Why? Because David didn't know what to do with it. The glory of God had presented itself in a massive way and David didn't know how to respond. I don't want to take anybody else down there, have a nice parade, and have someone else drop dead. How, How do I deal with this? But David reflects on this. And he comes to a realization and a recognition that the whole first try was out of step. We've talked about this recently. The second journey was the journey of joy. Because there is joy, secondly, there is joy in the refinement of His grace. What do you mean refinement? I mean grace changes me. Grace alters me. It's a refining gift that does not leave me unchanged. This has taken me an entire lifetime to understand, and I'm only like halfway through. So I'm not sure if I yet even fully grasp this. But we need to understand something about grace. It is not just this soft, easy thing. 
Grace refines us. God gives us His grace that we might walk in His ways which He does not promise to be easy. Grace does not mean easy. It's too big for that. Grace does not mean simple. It's too rich for that. Grace leads us out on what is often the hardest road to travel. And that's partially what makes grace so wonderful. David begins to realize, you know, there's my way and there's God's way. And my way results in death. Because you see, the the flesh, the carnal brings about death. It's the spirit that gives life. And on the first journey, David blew it and there was death. On the second journey, there was joy. There's a recognition that when you do things God's way, His grace and His favor changes you. It alters your worship and your approach to the Lord, such that for David, every six steps, they stopped, built an altar, and sacrificed. That was a completely altered journey. But, but I thought grace was when you didn't do things right. I thought grace was when you were sinning. Hey, Paul received grace, right? When he was saved. But Paul was continually refined by grace the rest of his life in Christ. So are you. So am I. Here's the depth of grace. It saves us. But then God, by His grace, does not leave us where we were when we were saved. He begins to refine and change and alter us. Grace is that. That changing, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that that he had received, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself, and I submit to you, that's grace. That's grace? A tormenting agent of Satan? Absolutely. Listen. Listen. Paul says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, Paul says, therefore, I'll boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Better to have a thorn in the flesh, a constant source of pain and struggle and trial by the grace of God than to be exalted in your own mind. And blown away by your own foolish pride. You see, that's grace working in the life of Paul. And that's the second journey for all of us where suffering exists, but joy is realized in the grace of God that is ever-present with us. Paul would end his life saying in 2 Timothy 1.9, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That's why John Newton was able to write, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Our English word for grace is also translated refinement. I had never realized this before. Grace is refining. Grace changes us. It is by the grace of God that some of you are in pain right now. That's grace. I was joking around on Wednesday night, especially uh, with some of our senior saints. We were talking about the fact that uh, you know David was in his 70s likely when he fought Ishvi Banab, this, this giant. David still goes out to war in his 70s, and I was kind of joking about David going out to war with a walker and all that. Let me tell you something. Those of you in your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, you have an understanding of grace that those of us younger are just barely starting to get. You get it. I remember talking with my grandma Irene late in life. And there was a piece in her that I wanted. And she had had it hard. She was 50 years old when her husband died. She lived until she was 94 and she never, ever fell out of love with him. She would still tear up in her 90s when someone would mention him. You think it was easy for her? She had a rough life, but she had such peace. She was refined by grace. And that's what we're talking about here. Being perfected in our weakness, and there's joy in that kind of grace. 
Verse 6, Now as for me, David said, I I said in my prosperity, (laughs) my prosperity, I will never be moved. I have arrived. Look at my cedar palace. Other kings are sending materials to me to build me a house. I am now the Lord of all I survey. Over all of Israel. Good stuff. Oh Lord, by Your favor You've made my mountain to stand strong. See, that's the easy part of faith. To look at God and say, look at how He's blessed me. Let me tell you something. Prosperity gospel is easy. It's also weak. David then turns around and says, you hid your face and I was dismayed. Something changed. Something changed from verse 6 to the end of verse 7. I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. And then he says, you hid your face and I was dismayed. The Hebrew word is bahal. Dismayed. It means literally anxious. I was troubled. You hid your face. Everything was going so well. Suddenly you weren't there. Suddenly I couldn't see you. Suddenly David is troubled and worried and upset. And all this stuff that he had, all that he had amassed for himself was worth nothing when God was no longer there. I think we, well many of us have had this mindset. I will not be moved. I've built my own little empire. I've got my home. I've got my portfolio. I have my friends, my family, my future. I have it all laid out. Everything's clicking. Everything's working great. But it's never enough. It's never enough. And if you're walking in the Lord, you may even realize He's blessed you with these things, but suddenly you're saying, it's just, I'm not happy. I'm anxious. I'm troubled. And Jesus said, Matthew 16.26, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What's it worth, really, to get everything you desired, but to be empty in your spirit? You hid your face, David says, and I was anxious. I was dismayed. I was troubled. What do you do when you realize that everything that you have or you have achieved or you have accomplished suddenly is worthless? When Uzzah died, David's there. You know, his massive 30,000 man march, big parade, the music kind of fades and stops. And us is dead on the ground. And suddenly all this splendor was worthless. You hid your face. I was dismayed. What do you do? Verse 8. To you, O Lord, I called. And to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. I submit that those three verses were the prayer of David across three months. That from the time of Uzzah's death to the time when they finally returned to Obed-Edom's house to bring the ark up, that's what David was praying. Lord, what do I do? Father, be my helper. To you, Lord, I call. To you, I make supplication. Which is how David spent those three months. Returning to the Lord because he realized that all this was worthless without this. Without the relationship that he had with the Father. Number three in your notes, if you're a note taker, there is joy in returning to his gaze. Joy in returning to his gaze. What, what, gaze. what the world doesn't understand is that the idea of God having his eyes on you is not a creepy thing. But the idea that God is watching you is not imposing and difficult. It's wonderful. I want my Father's eyes on me. I want to know the Lord is gazing at me, that He's got me in His sights. There's joy in returning to His gaze, in repenting to the Lord, in recognizing there's no treasure, no lifestyle, no security worth having if His eyes aren't on you. If you're doing it on your own. For David, there's no better blessing that he could have than the loving gaze of his father. Number 624, I just love this blessing. Aaron was told by God to pray this over the people. So really it's a blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Because the greatest peace is when God is looking at you. When He's got you in His loving gaze. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. 
Paul says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love this. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night, that after those giant wars that David was involved in, he went to fight Ishbibanah, but, but what happened? Well, his strength failed. And Abishai had to come running in and save David's life and, and beat off this giant and kill him. And then David's men, 2 Samuel 21, they gather on David and said, That's it, you're grounded, mister. No more going to war. Back to Jerusalem with you, and you need to stay there. We will fight. You are our king. We can't have the lamp of Israel go out. And I wondered how that would be for the heart of a warrior king who fought all his life suddenly to be told, No more battles for you, man. David goes back. You know how he responds? Was he bummed out? Was he depressed? Was he saddened? Was he pining away for the glory days? No, in Psalm 27, verse 8, David writes, When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. David says, You guys think you're grounding me? You are sending me to the very place I want to be. The presence of the Lord always. The house of the Lord. Near the Lord. The courts of the Lord. That's where I wanted to be. Lord, You can take everything else away from me, but don't take Your eyes off me. Verse 11, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. What was David doing the second time they brought the ark up from Obed-Edom's house? He was dancing. You've turned my mourning into dancing. And David danced with all his might. He continues on and says, You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. The clothes of mourning and despair are cast off for that simple, remember what David was wearing, the nondescript linen ephod. That I know some have said was underwear. It's not underwear. It was the robe of a priest. Simple, plain linen. Well, so how does that work with David being girded with gladness? Well, 2 Samuel 6.12 tells us, David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And there was real joy. The first time it was a parade, it was a rock concert, it was great, but it wasn't joyful. It was showy. Second journey. The journey of a man who had wept through the night and now found joy in the morning was a journey of gladness. And the gladness was rich throughout the whole city at that time. You've turned for me my morning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Because number four, there is joy in the reflection of His glory. There's joy in the reflection of His glory. Note this in verse 12. He says that my soul may sing praise to you. You know what the word soul is there? Kabod. It's not soul at all. It's glory. That my glory may sing praise to you. That my glory may praise you and, and not be silent. It's as if David says, I get it. The singular purpose for my glory is to praise your glory. That if there's anything glorious in me, it it is to be the reflection of the glory of God. Moses' face. You remember this? It it shined when he came down after being in the presence of the Lord, which I think is a really kind of cool, supernatural, funky thing. His face glowed. He came off the mountain and it freaked the Israelites out. They said, dude, put a veil on because we can't look at that. The people who wanted to see His glory and yet they couldn't even handle the reflection of it off of the face of Moses. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7 that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of His face. Fading as it was. So Moses puts a veil over it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from the same image, into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And Jesus said it this way. I hope you have this verse memorized. 
Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what David is saying. That my glory may sing praise to you and be not silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. In that promise of Jesus' second coming, He says this, Isaiah 61 verse 3, I will grant those who, are in, who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. But note this, note this. Why is Jesus going to do that? Why does Jesus offer this wonderful promise? Isaiah goes on to say, So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. That he may, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be filled with gladness. Given the mantle of praise. Why? For you? No. So that He will be glorified. So that what is given to us and what is in us is a complete reflection of Him. That as people look at us, they go, Wow! God is great. Oh, He is, he is awesome. That, that He did that with Rick. But look at Rick. He actually looks good. That can't be from Him. It's got to be the Lord. (laughs) It must be God. Gang, this is where the real joy is. The praise of His glory. Singing, worshiping without being silent. When we get that, no amount of prosperity or poverty is going to make any difference. Rich, poor, who cares if you can gather and worship and praise the Lord. Because that's a joy that people cannot take away. That's a joy that circumstance cannot snuff out. Could you use a little joy this morning? It's found in the remembrance of His goodness. Joy is found in the refinement of grace, in returning to His gaze, and in reflecting His glory, and yet some people still miss it. And this for me is perhaps the most stunning that in spite of all that God has done, in spite of how He has offered Himself to us through Jesus on the cross, in the resurrection, that even in understanding the, the joy of life eternal, there are still those who call out no joy. No joy. You pilots know the phrase, no joy. It means an inability to make a visual sighting or establish contact when a pilot calls no joy. And there was someone in the city of David on that day who could not establish contact with the goodness, the grace, the gaze, or the glory of God. Someone who was calling out no joy in the midst of the gladness of the city. David's wife, Michael. 2 Samuel 6, you remember the story. David comes home. It's just been a great day. Filled with the joy of the Lord. They passed out raising cakes and treats to everybody. Everybody goes home and David's got his and he comes back to his house and he's ready to bless his family. Come home and share this together. Michael comes out. 2 Samuel 6.20 How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servant maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. (laughs) On this day of gladness, that's what David comes home to. Incredible. And the story ends with Michael barren to the day of her death. She will never have children. What's the point? Some people call no joy. Some are unable to connect with the joy in the morning. Unable to spiritually get out of bed. To get out of the comfort zone. To dance. To sing. To worship unashamedly before the Lord. We had here several years ago now, and I knew I would eventually refer back to this. We had a couple of ladies who were coming to the bridge. And during worship, they just wouldn't shut up. I'm telling you, hallelujah! You know, and their hand, and they, they didn't just lift their hands, they waved their hands. They got so into it. People are looking around. 
Someone tagged them the Hallelujah Ladies. Okay, it was probably me. Has the church become so reserved in our worship and so rehearsed and so stolid in our approach to God that we are becoming barren in this generation? You see, Michael wouldn't worship the Lord. She was embarrassed by it, by David's actions. Ooh, that is not a royal act. That is not the behavior of a king. And it, it bothered her. She gets on David for it. And so whether it was because David would not go in and sleep with her again, or because God had done it, this woman, who called no joy, would be barren the rest of her life because the result of no joy is no fruit. I think we've got to make a connection here between how we are willing to worship God and how many people are getting saved in this generation. Why are the numbers down in America? Have you watched worship in Africa? It's so cool. In the Philippines? The very first song out, when, when, when Russ and I and the, and the others got to the Philippines a few years back. And by the way, we're going in November again, and if you're interested in going, talk to Russ. Very first song. You know, there's like, I don't know, 60 people maybe? Is that too many? 50? In this little room, and these little Filipinos get up there, and they strap on instruments with strings that are rusted and out of tune. And, and I, I was like, this is going to sound terrible. One, two, three, four, boom, and they were off. Everybody's on their feet, jumping up and down. And we're like... <laughs> you know, this is okay here. We can do that here. And they, I, I just hadn't seen people worship like that. They were so excited. Why aren't we? What is wrong with us? And we can even laugh about it, but my friends, the result of no joy is no fruit. It's an inability to reproduce joy or grace or even salvation by the Spirit of God if we are not willing to be demonstrative in our worship. I'm not asking you to be weird. I'm just asking you not to care what anybody else thinks. And to start just thinking about what does the Lord think? How do I feel about God right now? Do, do I feel like standing? Fine, stand. Do I feel like praising Him with hands lifted up? I'm going to do that. Do I feel like being on the floor, on my knees, on the dirty concrete? That's where I'm going. Do I feel like just sitting there and just basking and, 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 and praising the Lord in all this? It does not matter what the rest of the body thinks. It doesn't matter what Michael thinks. There will always be, sadly, there will always be people calling no joy in the church body. And they are missing out. And they are missing Him. Let me add one more point to the mix. There is joy in the reproduction of our joy. Joy in the fruitfulness of worship. What The Hebrew writer says, let us offer sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that sing praise to His name. We're in this, this book of praises, the Psalms. No doubt we're going to talk about this quite a bit more. We're only in chapter 30. We've got another 120 to go. <laughs> Woohoo! But this book, I am convinced, was not included in the Bible for the sake of head knowledge. We were not called into this book so that we could go back and, and redefine, re-understand, re-detail historical fact. We're not even in this book for prophetic assurances, although that's there. The book of praises is meant to stir our emotions and, and to touch our hearts, to teach us what it means to be joyful worshipers of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. Talk about not worrying about being ashamed or embarrassed. This book was meant to make us joyful worshipers. That's what music does, you know? That's why God gave us songwriters and poets in the world to draw on our emotion because they say the things that the rest of us are embarrassed to say. And they sing in ways that the rest of us be like, well, I ain't singing if there are a bunch of people around here. The book of praises is to teach us to be passionate worshipers. Well, pastor, I'm just not a morning person. Okay, repent. (laughs) Become one. Praise God. If you are a person 
who says, whether out loud or in your heart, if you're a person who says, the worship here is too long, it's too excitable, it's too emotional, I'm here to tell you, it's not even close to how excitable, emotional, and, and long it should be. It's funny, I had one song to the worship, and I generally I'll have one person come up and go, it's a little long this morning. Yeah? Yeah, do you think God was bored? You think he was wondering where he's going to go to lunch, you know, when we get out of here? Besides the fact, what do you think you're going to be doing in heaven for all eternity? Revelation chapter 4 tells us this. Beginning about verse 7 around the throne in this amazing picture of the, of the throne room, this description John gives us. He says the first creature there, speaking of cherubim, by the way, was like a lion, and the second like a calf, and the third like the, with the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And what John couldn't see, that was only one perspective. If he had gone around to the side, he would have seen all four creatures had all four faces. We know that from Ezekiel. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Watch this. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and because of Your will they existed and were created. And you know what that causes to happen? It causes the cherubim to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty. And the elders hear that and they fall down again. They praise Him again. And around and around and around it goes and it's an eternal thing. At the end of chapter 5 and verse 9 it says, They say, a new song which is by the way the song of the redeemed it's you singing it's me singing worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation you have made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God and we will reign upon the earth around and around it goes do you understand there will be singing in heaven constantly and you are not going to have the luxury of sitting on a bench on the side going, it's those hallelujah angels again. <laughs> People will be praising, falling down, casting crowns, bowing, shouting, worshiping in heaven. Joy in the morning. That is the joy that we are called to, that we have to look forward to. Oh Lord my God, David says, I will give thanks to you forever. Not for 20 minutes. Not for 45. Forever. Better get used to it. Father, we praise You today. We worship You. We love You, Lord. And it is not long enough this morning. Oh, that the day would come, Father, where we would not end the service. Where we would just keep going for the whole day. In fact, Lord, I think that's a good idea. We'll get that on the calendar. God, we praise You. Lord, I pray over the Bridge Fellowship that something would break among us. Whether it be a pridefulness or an arrogance, Lord, or just a fear of what people might think. That in our worship, we wouldn't be interested in calling attention to ourselves but doing everything with our hearts, our minds, our bodies to bring all attention and glory and praise and wonder to You, Lord. Help us to be that kind of body, a body of worship, body of praise, and a body of joy every morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand up and praise God together. Worship team, come on up.